Assalamu alaikum, ladies and gentlemen, guys and girls. Welcome back to the T3M podcast with your host, Fayad, Rami, and Anhel. And we're joined with another special guest, Fahad Sheikh, Fahad Taslim. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Uh, so I don't know, there's not really much to introduce, man. Just uh, just a random guy out of out of Houston, Texas, uh, you know, here to like crash your, your, uh, your podcast. <laughs> no just on a more serious note um so just about myself I'm, I'm married i got five kids uh i'm working in the field of dawa for 20 years now i think um so i work with an organization called aira islamic education and research academy it's based out of the uk and uh, i'm also a uh i guess you can say researcher and instructor for sapiens institute so that's uh, just briefly about me inshallah any mm. more details we can get into it as well <laughs> no man uh when when you reached out to me or when i reached out to you on instagram and you know we started just chopping it up uh getting to know each other on the on the brief uh i, I literally thought you were in your 20s if not like early 30s and then when you told me you got five kids i was like mashallah man yeah i, t- I told that to my wife and she just rolled her eyes she's like yeah right <laughs> no no if, if if you're watching this just know like 100 percent Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Uh, Alhamdulillah. Good, man. Young at heart, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. MashaAllah. So uh, you, you talked a little bit about how you're a part of Aira and Sapiens Institute right now. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background before that, how sure. you got to there, what you studied, what your interests were. Sure. And um, if you want, even before that, you can even tell us what brought you into Islam, if you were never really too much of a practicing Muslim to begin with. Sure, sure. All right. Yeah. So I guess we'll start there, man. Like why, uh, how did I come to Islam? Um, so I guess it depends how far back we want to go, but, uh, da, da, da. so I'll just start with college. How about that? So in college, um, I don't know if you could even say I was a practicing Muslim, like borderline Muslim, maybe not even Muslim. Right. I was into basically everything, you know, anyone that's been to college is into, all right. You can fill in the blanks yourself. And, um, you know, I, I graduated from Michigan State University, and uh, my first job was at a, a firm in Washington, D.C. called MCI WorldCom. You guys probably don't remember it, but it was part of some accounting scandal, and the whole thing came down. But that's a separate story. And I had a manager, and, um, you know, I was in their tax department. I graduated in accounting, again, economics and accounting. Again, don't ask why. <laughs> so I started in, in their tax department, and I had this manager, and... Um, Again, I'm not really into religion. I'm just living day by day. I'm just like, you know, let's just party it up. It's just one thing after the other to the next, uh, you know, the next ride that you want to go on. And she comes to me and she says, you know, Fahad, you really need to start thinking about, uh, you know, God. And, uh, you know, you should really accept the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in your life. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) so I'm like, I'm like, look, man, in my mind, I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't I don't know much about like Islam. But I know that's not really where I want to be, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, we used to have these really deep conversations. And at that time, um, because I was in D.C., there was a satellite branch of the Jamiat uh, Ibn um, um, there, There's a university in, uh, in the Riyadh, which had a satellite branch in, in uh, Virginia. And there was, a, there was a lot of mashayikh who would teach there. And they would hold like durus and things like that. And so one of my friends who I guess had gotten religious, uh, you know, told me, he's like, man, I envy you so much. You live in that area. You got to go check out their, the Rus, right? 
So I'm like, okay, like I'll go there. I'll go to their lessons or whatever. And um, so I walk in, I remember the first time I walked in. So I'm this clean shaven guy, you know, just whatever, like totally not what everyone else there looks like. So everyone there is like totally in the thobe beard, you know, the kufi, and just, and I walk in the door and everyone just kind of turns and looks at me and I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the wrong place here, man. I'm totally out of place. Um, but I went ahead and walked in and I sat down and um, I think the, I don't know if it was that day, but I know later on um, they had classes by uh, Sheikh Jafar Idris. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, he is originally from Sudan and he blew my mind because the things that he was talking about, like, you know, the things that we talk about in Aira and Sapiens now, he was talking about it back then. So you're talking 20 plus years ago, he's talking about the philosophy of science, right? And how one needs to understand before you go to college, you need to understand that there are philosophical, you know, underpinnings to whatever you study, whether it's economics, whether it's, you know, physical sciences, social sciences, all of that has philosophical underpinnings. So he presented Islam in a way that, you know, I, I, I think was very unique. And so that just kind of sucked me in. And from there, you know, that's basically where the whole story started. And that's where I started to study. And, um, you know, I sat with some mashayikh and, you know, started to, you know, focus on, on the Arabic and things like that. And I can, and then, and then I continued making dawah to my manager. So, so she was, you know, calling me to Christianity and we'd have these deep conversations because I was a novice. Um, there was a lot of mistakes that I made. Right. So we went in these conversations. I was telling, oh man, let me tell you 20,000 things wrong with the Bible. Right. And we got into just this nuanced discussion about the Bible, which, you know, when you look back 20 years ago, you're like, yeah, that was definitely not the way to go, you know? Um, but in a nutshell, that's where the whole thing started. And I like to think that the reason I, I love the, the, the idea of dawah and outreach, new Muslims and things like that, is just because, you know, it was by way of dawah, right? Someone inviting me to their religion that I start to practice Islam, you know? And even today, like, uh, not today, but meaning like, uh, I think it was, uh, I reached out to my manager maybe last year and I told her, you know, Tari, you're the reason why <laughs> like, I actually started down this path, you know? And, uh, you know, she's really nice. She's, she's, you know, I, I, like I said, I made some mistakes at the time. And, you know, now when you look back in hindsight, you think, man, if I could do it again, I would have definitely added certain elements of my character and things like that to improve how I presented Islam. So anyway, so that's a little bit about my journey, how I got here. And then from there, I just, you know, step-by-step, step, I, I went to grad school. There was, you know, uh, I went to actually grad school in LA. Um, and uh, there was some mashaykh in some of the, the, the rougher neighborhoods in LA. And uh, I was able to, to study fiqh with um, uh, a person who was offered to be a qadi in Saudi, the first American qadi, the first American judge. Uh, and he refused and he came back to the hood and basically cleaned up his whole neighborhood, mashallah. And so I studied some fiqh with him, um, you know, some of, uh, you know, theology, aqidah with, uh, with Sheikh Jafar Idris and a few others in that area. So, and that's what it was, man. I spent a little bit of time, a uh, brief stint in, in Medina and, um, you know, and studied in uh, secular uh, universities as well. So Arabic studies was at Georgetown, uh, UT Austin. Uh, I did graduate studies at UT Austin as well in uh, Middle Eastern studies and theology. So just... I'm like all over the place in that area. I just like, I just, different things interest me. So wherever I, wherever I find something interesting, I just jump right into it. So I've been like that since the beginning. So yeah, man, that's pretty much a little background about myself. Anything else? Any, anything else you want to know? Any other Mashallah. details? I had, a, I had a quick question before the, the sure. other two jump in. 
Sure. Um, so just bear with me, both of y'all. Yeah, no, go for it. Uh, my first question would be, what would the top three things about giving dawa or topics that interest you the most? So that's, I would say that's evolved, right? So in the beginning, um, I'd say that, that my top three topics probably would have been, um, you know, certain things related to Christianity, you know, but over time, because society has, I think, gone in a certain direction as well, uh, that's shifted, right? So nowadays, I'm, I'm more into things like spirituality, uh, you know, the, the, you know, as hopefully we'll talk about the ontology of the soul. Um, and then certain elements of philosophy interest me as well, right? Because I think that, uh, the, you know, when I first thought about Dawa, it was all about kind of argumentation. And how do you win the argument? How do you win, you know, how do you demolish the person in an argument? And over time, as you develop and you come closer to Allah and you, and you start to study more, you realize the objective is not to win the argument, but it's to win the heart, right? And so because of that, my, my, own, my, my own focus has shifted, right? So my top three would probably, you know, ontology of the soul, uh, spirituality, and then, uh, you know, philosophy. Um. I had a second question and sure. that's it for me. And then we can inshallah go on. Sure. So if the word soul didn't exist, yeah, what would be the perfect word to describe everything that it entails? If the word soul didn't like in English mm-hmm. or am I limited to English or can I, uh, can I use yeah, other language? We, no, we got to use English. You got to use English. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess another word would be spirit. Right. And that's where, uh, the term pneumatology comes in. So that's another area of interest that I have. It's a study of the spirit, but usually it's done from the Christian framework. So when they talk about the spirit, they're talking about the Holy Spirit, which is a different concept altogether. But I would say a close, maybe if you're, if you're not using soul, then perhaps spirit, because it comes from that, uh, the idea of something that's intangible yet fills the human being, right? And I think that's closer to the concept of what, in, what in Arabic we call the ruah, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that would. That was your second question. Yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Alhamdulillah. I have a good question though, inshallah. Sure, man, go for it. So, I would say I'm more passing that stage of um just debate, debate, crush argument, ruin them kind of thing. Just demolish them, man. That's it. Finish them off. You're finished. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, It's your Muhammad hijabs to uh, face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! Subhanallah. So. And the, yeah, you're right with the issue. The issue with that is you're not winning the person's heart. Um, and perhaps sometimes in a public debate, your okay. opponent, if there's somebody like, you know, Abu Jahl or something like that, then crushing sure. their arguments in front of everyone else might open up their hearts and stuff. Yeah, perhaps not. I really like the way Hamza Zorsis conducted himself during the debate with Professor Krauss because he would say subtle things like, you know, I'm trying to connect with you. I'm not trying to like argue, but right. still from our perspective, we would say that he definitely won that debate in every manner, mashallah. Right. Um, even especially intellectually, actually. So right. my question is, how do you win a person's heart? Or very generally, what did you realize or what did you start to implement? So, um, so let, let's go back a couple of steps, right? Um, first of all, when I say winning the person's heart, one of the things that we sometimes forget about when we're in a conversation or when we're, let's say, debating someone is that it's not only the person you're debating, but it's also like if you, it would be, it would be beneficial for you to reflect on your own state as well, right? Like when you're in an argument, you know, it's a very easy line to cross between, you know, I'm doing this for the sake of Allah 
and I'm doing it for the sake of myself because I want to look good, right? Like going from sincerity to ego is like a quick jump when you're in an argument because the focus then becomes, I want to win the argument. So that has a spiritual ramification on you yourself as someone that's in that state, right? So one sort of realization that I had was this is actually affecting me spiritually, right? And maybe that's a bit selfish, but when you're in a, because again, you know, if you're not there, if you're not, let's say, arguing for the sake of Allah, then what are you really arguing for? It's just to, so that you're right, you know? And this is, a, uh, this is something I think people, you know, when, they, when they're really able to hone in on this, they can apply it to every part of their life. Like when a person gets married and you're in an argument with your wife, right? Um, a lot of times it's just ego, man. Like, you know, you're wrong, right? You know, you're going to be sleeping on the couch that night, but you keep going, right? It's like someone said, uh, there's a divorce lawyer. He said, look, man, you can be right or you can be happy. Right. So, so, I mean, you make the choice. Um, and I think, you know, that concept of understanding yourself before you get into a straight up, uh, you know, debate or, you know, conversation with someone, I think it's really important. Right. And I think that had a lot to do with my shift in, in focusing of how, you know, the idea of focusing on the person rather than focusing on the argument and winning the argument. Right. Generally in, in our tradition, in the Islamic tradition, Jidal or argumentation is considered a negative attribute anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's why the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he said, I, you know, I promise a house in paradise for the one who gives up argumentation, even if they're right, right? So it's like, do mm -hmm. I want a house in paradise or do I want to win this argument? It's like, the argument's not really worth it, you know? Anyhow, so that was one aspect. The second thing was just a, a general study of the human construct, which may seem a bit odd, right? Um, a lot of times we forget, or maybe we're not aware that, you know, the human being is created in a state of goodness, right? When we talk about the fitrah, that's a state of, of, of purity and goodness. And as, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, he says, he said, you know, every child is born upon the fitrah, is born in a state of goodness. And this can be a really big game changer because when you realize that the person you're talking to at their core, they're good, they're pure. That's how they were created, right? And that what your, your goal is just to take that goodness and have it manifest. And that's really what you're trying to do at the end of the day, you know? And that has, you know, I'll tell you something. I was in um, just this concept of we're born in a state of goodness. Um, I'll tell you two quick stories, all right? I was in, um, I was in uh, where was it, man? Oklahoma. I think it was, yeah, it was Oklahoma. And I finished uh, the khutbah, the Juma khutbah, right? The, the Friday, the sermon. And I was coming off the mimbar and the imam of that masjid, because I was visiting, he comes to me and he says, look, man, there's a, there's a lady in my office. She's asking questions about Islam. You're into this whole dawah thing. So can, can you talk to her, right? So I walk in and she starts just going at it. She's like, you know, I heard that in your religion, uh, you know, your prophet uh, ordered that there would be, you know, you, you, you know that the, or, the, the order of the slaughtering of 500 Jews, you know, and all this stuff. And, and I just walked in, I was like, okay, listen, let's, 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 let's have a conversation. Just, just, you know, I just, what's your name? Let me start with that. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I was, I was able to calm her down and things like that. And, and so we sat down and I asked her, I said, what's your background? And she says, you know, I'm Christian. And I was like, okay. Now, typically, and I'll, I'll put you guys to the test here for a second. So if she said I'm Christian from a Tao perspective, what should I do? What do you think? Where would you go? And either any of you guys can answer that. Where, where do you think I should go? If she says I'm Christian, I believe that, you know, I believe in Jesus. 
is as my savior. What what's next? What's the next step? What do you think? Well, I'm gonna Bismillah. I'm just gonna go based off of what I would have said a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. And I've been getting a little more into emotional intelligence and what you were talking about instead of just always being on debate mode. Yeah. So before I would always, you know, introduce it with, okay, Jesus, um, you know, Isa ibn Maryam alayhi never claimed divinity. Like, mm. and I can prove that. So I really don't need to say anything after that. Sure. Now I would more so, you know, kind of go a little bit more into, you know, why they believe that, what led them into it, their upbringing, kind of like Nice, that. nice. All right, all right. All right, anyone else? Difference of opinion? <laughs> I would, I would basically make the connection that uh our god is one mm. and that we worship the same god nice and just make them understand that first before if at all i'm gonna talk about jesus because obviously uh if if the woman came at you like that then she's already on the defensive so you saying anything about jesus is just gonna make her close up even more nice nice all right ram you want to take a shot yeah. shot at uh, it <laughs> it's very similar to fayad before i would be more like i would either just take like the hamza you know hamza's den approach like why and just keep pushing why right. uh, and try and break down that foundation in in different ways using either the bible philosophy three doesn't equal one that stuff basic right. stuff um but nowadays when i speak to christians it's more like oh okay which denomination and then i kind of get a little bit more into it with them interesting interesting all right so you guys want to you want to know what i told her what did you say <laughs> so so we sat down and I asked her, I said, look, um, from, my, from my reading of Christianity, you guys have a belief in original sin. Is that correct? And she said, yeah, that, that's right. I said, so, and that stems from Adam and Eve eating from the tree. And then because they sinned, they were cast out of paradise. I was like, is that, you know, she said, yeah. I said, look, um, in our tradition, we have the same story, except there's an important difference and that difference is, is that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, um, they asked God for forgiveness and God forgave them. So we don't have a concept of original sin. Like people are not born in a state of sin. They're born in something what we call the fitra, a state of goodness. And then I asked her, I said, look, um, I'm like, do you give charity at your church? I'm like, you know, do you, do you tithe and stuff like that? Do you give charity? She's like, yeah, yeah, I do. I was like, when you give charity, how does that make you feel? like at your, at your, at your, at your center. It's like, well, I feel good. I said, I want you to think about that. Right. Why do you feel good? Like you feel good. Like if you were, if your core state was one of like evil and sin, you just gave someone money for nothing in return. So your core state should dictate that you should feel rotten, right? Like you just gave someone money for nothing. Like if you look at this from a, from a, you know, a Benthinium utilitarian worldview, like, you should really feel rotten and yet you feel good. And what we as Muslims would say is the reason why you feel good is because you are good at your core, right? And that's how God creates every human being. And so this whole concept of Adam sinning and we're carrying that sin, we don't hold that, right? We're responsible for what we do, but at the core, we're good. So anyway, so we spoke a little bit, a little bit longer and then we did eventually get to Jesus but by the time we got to Jesus, I think she kind of fully understood that the whole concept of being sent for the sins of humanity, it kind of, it, it's, it, it, it breaks down when you understand that human beings are born in a state of goodness, right? And that God is like forgiving from that perspective. Um, alhamdulillah. And before she left, she took her shahada, man. She became Muslim. 
So, uh, I just wanted, uh, I just wanted to throw in something there that one of the main misconceptions I get from non-Muslims, um, or even Islamophobes to begin with, are that you know it's your prophet or your Arab God, right? Allah, right? I mean, it's like, no, it's it's the one. When you really get deeper into it, it it shows you how, how silly it is. No, absolutely, man. Absolutely. I mean, look, that's the thing. I mean, we, we live in an, in an environment where people can come at you pretty hard, right? Um, you know, especially how Islam is portrayed in general. I mean, you're going to get a lot of people with a lot of, you know, crazy things. I mean, I live in Texas, man. You have people come up to you and just be like, you know, why are you all killing the people? And you're like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? You know? So, but just it, it so it becomes a matter of not the argument. And, and my point with that story was basically, you know, I could have gotten into an argument with her. You know, I could have been offended at that first statement because your gut reaction when someone says, hey, the Prophet Muhammad was a pedophile, na'udhu billah, right? Your gut reaction is say, wait a minute, and to try to go into defensive mode, right? Or when she said, um, you know, that, that your, your Prophet, uh, you know, slaughtered, you know, 600 Jews or whatever. You know, your, your gut reaction is to go into defensive mode and be like, well, no, 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 where'd you read that? And where'd you get that? And how do you, you don't understand the context and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned over time is that you've got to suppress that initial gut reaction. And remember, your, your job there is to win the person's heart, not to win that specific argument or to clarify that p- particular point. And what's really crazy is that I was on the plane back home, right, from Oklahoma, and I realized I never answered her first question. <laughs> like that question mm. about, oh, I heard the Prophet Muhammad, like, you know, slaughtered, you know, 600 Jews or whatever it was. I never answered it. But the interesting thing now is that when she now goes to the life of the Prophet and she reads about that incident, now she has the lenses of Islam to read about it. So she's coming from a completely different worldview, whereas before she's coming from a worldview that's just attack mode, right? So she'll be able to, she has the tools now to understand, let's say, a particular incident, right? Or the marriage of the Prophet or whatever it might be, you know? So a lot of times we get into this gut reaction to just go into defensive mode and say, no, that's not true, right? Um, and sometimes it's just about, look, what's, what's the goal? The goal is to win the heart of the person. You want to connect this person. So on the day of judgment, when you're standing before Allah, that this person can't say, you know what, Fahad, they never told me about la ilaha illallah. They never told me that oh, there's only one God and there's only one God worthy of worship. You know, you could have gotten into some conversation, you know, some, somebody comes up to a sister in hijab. Why do you wear the hijab? You know, and then, oh, well, you know, it's because of modesty or whatever. It gives all the reasons in the world. And let's say this person says, you know what? You're right. The appropriate level of modesty is the hijab, right? And they die. So the question is, will that fact save them from the hellfire? No, right? Because if they're still believing that, you know, that, that God is one in three or whatever it might be, or that, you know what, I'm worthy of worship over God or whatever it might be, then you really haven't done much. You've convinced them of some random fiqh position in Islam, but you really haven't won the person's heart and connected that person to their purpose in life, right? So anyway, so the, the second story I was going to tell you was that we were in uh, New Zealand, myself and some of the Aira guys, uh, right after the shootings happened there. Yeah. Uh, and then we went back the year, the year after, cause they were supposed to do a, uh, like a, a year anniversary of the shootings. So we did a presentation. We, we basically traveled through New Zealand, like city by city. And we went to this, you know, we went to different cities and one of the cities we went to, I explained this idea of the fitra. And then I said, I said, look, man, 
just be real with yourself. When you see a newborn child, do you think to yourself, ah, look at that sinful little rat. <laughs> or do you think, look at that innocent little child, right? That if something happened to that, it's innocent, it's pure. Like what is your natural state when you look at that child? So if you take a worldview that says we're all born in a state of sin, that child should be evil right at the, at the onset. But from the worldview of Islam, the reason why you have that natural intuitive inclination to think that child is innocent and pure is because every child is born upon the fitrah. And we don't hold that belief. Our assumption when, when we meet people, our assumption is that you are good at your heart and you're good at your core before we assume that you're bad. That's a, that's a, that's a concept within, you know, across the board in Islam. So this lady, after she finished, she came up to me and she says, you know, my whole life, I've always had this problem with the original sin that, you know, and this was the main issue was, how could you say that a child is in a state of sin? And she's like, you just clarified it for me. Like what you said was, was very profound, you know? And so um, my point in mentioning these two stories is that understanding that the human being is good at their core and our job is not to win the argument, but to have them realize their true, who they are, right? And who they are, are based on their fitra, are people who were, are, are, are beings that were created by Allah with a purpose to submit to and love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you have that in mind, then it just, it changes things, you know, across the board. So anyways, that was a really long-winded answer to, to your question, man. No, that, that was a great one. Uh, Fahad, when you had told her all this and you got to the subject of the uh, Isa, of Jesus, yeah. peace be upon him, what did she say? Like, how did she react to that? And like, how did you present it to her? So what I present, the way I presented, I said, look, I'm not asking what you believe, but I'm asking, what do you think is right? Like if I presented this to an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, if I, I have the Islamic framework in front of us and which says that human beings are born in a state of goodness, that Jesus, you know, who he was, was a messenger of God, that, you know, from the Islamic framework, he didn't die, you know, and wasn't crucified. And the whole concept of sins is not from someone else, but you're responsible for you. I'm not asking what you believe. I'm asking which one do you think makes more sense, right? I'm just saying, just, just be honest. And, um, and again, I'm not asking what you believe or what you hold dear. I mean, that, that's, I totally respect that. I mean, I don't totally respect that, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, I'm just asking, what do you think? And she was, it, it was a moment that she just kind of, I, I think she was just really honest with herself. And she said, well, you know what, what you said makes more sense. And it actually, you know, it, it, it's, it, 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 it resonates more. You know, and then she started talking about how she always had a con had a problem with the concept of Jesus and all of these things, which I think maybe she was struggling with before. You know, um, I just think that if I'd come out just right through the door and said, like, you know, Jesus is not God. And, uh, you know, you know, how can you, you know what do you mean? One plus one plus one is, 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 is one. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, I mean, it would have been a different conversation. Right. Because mm -hmm. and that's the thing, like every so every human has their fitra, they're at their state, they're good. But human beings also have desires, right? And one of the things, one of the part of our desires, aside from food and drinking and, you know, eating and, you know, and, and in relations, marital relations, is your desire to be right, your ego, you know? And understanding that this is a, you know, a constant struggle with people is that how do I, you know, I've got this pure goodness inside of me and yet my desires are always pushing me away from it. You've got this internal struggle, right? And that, in, that internal struggle takes place on the heart. 
And, you know, scholars say that's why the, the qalb in Arabic, it's called qalb. It's called qalb because it comes from, you know, to, to overturn, right? The term comes from to overturn something like boiling water. So it's just constantly because your heart is always in this battle going back and forth, right? You always want to do good. Sometimes you fall and then sometimes you come back to Allah. Um, and once you understand that, that you understand that that's true for human beings in general, that they're going to be struggling with their egos as well. And that's why, you know, when it comes to like live debates, I'm not a fan of proliferating the idea of having debates like all the time as a dawah tool, right? I mean, it's certain context, it works. You need to put them in, in their place, you know, certain times, sure. But as a, as a dawah tool, I find debates, um, I, I find you, you can be, I don't know how much dawah you're, you're getting done in a debate, right? Because if you think about a debate, people show up to a debate with their team in mind, right? Like if you're gonna go to a football game, you've got your team that you're rooting for, right? And, um, and so it's basically, you want your team to win. So it's not really, here's a sincere person, but here's a person that wants their team to win. So egos are at their highest in debates, right? And one of the hardest things when, you, when, when you're trying to win the heart of a person to battle is their ego. Because mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, if you think about even within the history of Islam, you look at the, one of the worst people, Abu Jahl, Right. I mean, you can't. The, the Prophet said that Abu Jahl is the is the Pharaoh, is the Pharaoh of this ummah, of this of this community. Right. So he's for, for the Muslims, he's like the Pharaoh of the Muslims. Right. And when they asked Abu Jahl, they said, look, man, this man, he came. He's a prophet. He claims to be a prophet. And what's do you not believe that? And he didn't say, no, it didn't rationally make sense to me or no, he's not a prophet. What he said was, look, man. Uh, I'm from the tribe of uh, I'm from the tribe of uh, Maghzum, Banu Maghzum. And the Prophet Muhammad is from the tribe of um, Banu Hisham, right? And so therefore, we have always historically been competing with each other. When they would give water to the people making Hajj, we would give them water. When they would give them food, we would give them food. So we were always in competition. And now you're saying that they have a prophet. How can we compete with that? I will never accept him as a prophet, right? Nothing to do with the rationality. It's all about my tribe versus that tribe. It's all ego, right? And so a lot of times when we're, when we're, when we're, when we're talking to people, it becomes, it behooves us to understand that you're talking to a human being and not a, a, a mechanical, logical robot. So you've got to deal with things like their, their base state, their goodness, but you also have to deal with things like their ego. You know, you might be talking to someone in a group and that person, because of the fact that you're in a group, um, they might not accept your message, even though internally they've accepted it. Like there was a guy I remember some time ago, you know, we used to have these, um, these dawah tables, uh, you know, at, at, on college campuses, right? Where you, you, you set up your table and, you know, you're calling people to Islam. And um, he used to come and he used to just incessantly argue, like just back and forth and eventually became Muslim. And he said, uh, we asked him later on, like, you know, so all those times you're arguing, he goes, you know, I knew you guys were right, but I just didn't want to lose the argument. <laughs> I knew in the beginning you guys were right. I just didn't want to look bad. You know, I just, I just, I didn't want to lose the argument. So the kind of the second part of that construct of the human being is that, look, there is a fitra and there's goodness, but there's also the challenge of one's, you know, one's kind of, um, you know, desires, right? And one of the main desires that you have to contend with is a person's ego. You know, if we think about, 
so the, the, the construct of the human being, you have a, um, an internal reality. All right. So l- let me, let me take it from a different perspective. You know, there's a verse in the Quran where Allah says, uh, Do not be like those who forgot God. So God caused them to forget themselves. Right. Now, if you were to just read that verse and you think, wait a minute, who is, who are the quintessential people who have forgotten God or don't want to have anything to do with God? Like, if you, like who are, who, what, what category of people is that? You'd probably think, okay, they're probably either atheist or agnostic, right? That they're, they're not, they don't want to have anything to do with God. It's just, and how have they forgotten themselves? Like this verse says, if you forget, like, you know, do not be like those who forgot God. So God will then cause them to forget themselves. How have they forgotten themselves? They probably still get up in the morning, brush their teeth. They probably have certain, you know, uh, certain things that they want to accomplish in life, right? They want to go to college. They want to get a good career. Uh, you know, maybe they want to get married or have, you know, relations. How have they forgotten themselves? So the question then arises when, when Allah says that they forgot themselves, what is being spoken about? But the question is, what does it mean? What does the self really mean? Like, what does that signify, right? And a lot of times when we think about the self, like who am I? we define ourselves by way of somebody else or something external to ourselves, right? So if it's social media, it's like, how many likes do I have on this post? That's how you're defining who am I, right? But when I'm, when I'm talking about, when you ask the question, who am I? I'm talking about your essence and your reality. Like what makes you, you, you know? So like um, if tomorrow, like they, 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 they have a policy here in the States, I guess, you know, and, and, and they say, all right, you have to change your names. If you have a Muslim sounding name, you got to get rid of it. So instead of Fahad, you got to be Frank, right? <laughs> or whatever, right? Instead of Rami, you got to be Robert, whatever it might be. So does that change who you are as a, like internally? Like, does that change you and your, your conscious reality? It doesn't, right? Just a name change, right? There's, there's a conscious reality that makes you, you, right? Um, if you got into a car accident, God forbid, you lose an arm, are you still you? Yeah, right? You're just missing an arm, right? If you lose, God forbid, your other arm, are you still you? Yeah, let's say you lose your legs, God forbid, are you still you? So what constitutes you is not your physical body, but it's something that's much deeper than that. And from the Islamic framework, we say that is your, your ruh, your spirit and your soul, right? So the one who forgets God, it's not that they forget their physical reality. They forget who they truly are in the sense that they have a spiritual inner consciousness that is who, what makes you, you. When you, um, like what's, what, what's, what's your favorite food, man? Just throw something out there. Any one of you guys. Mm. Favorite food? A lot. A lot. <laughs> Just one I'm of a, your favorite foods. I'm gonna name. I'm gonna name an ethnic dish for those okay. of you that might know what it is. What is it? Called halim. Halim. Okay, I've had halim. Mm. Anyone else had halim? Nobody. Oh man, that's a shame. Man, make toba. <laughs> Repent unto God. No, I'm kidding. All right, halim. You know when you eat halim, you have a certain inner subjective experience, meaning that what you could describe what that halim is like. You could say it's got, a, you know, it's got some spice. It's got a little tang. You know, it's got this texture, which is, you know, and it's, it's got a little meat in, so it's a little meaty. But I can never know what it's like for you as an individual when you eat the halim, that experience that you have, I can never tap into that. 
Yep. Even if you have the exact same Haleem that I'm having. Yeah. Because that is subjective and inner to your experience only. So what makes you, you is something much deeper than just your physical body. Right. Mm -hmm. And from the Islamic framework, that is the, the ruah, the soul. And so when someone forgets God, it's not that they've forgotten their, their physical reality, but they've forgotten their true essence and that essence that God has placed inside the human being, which is the ruah. Right. Um, and that constant struggle that I was talking about, it's a struggle between the ruh, that internal reality, that soul, that spirit, and your physical desires. Because your physical desires are housed in your physical body. And that's why when you look at um, books on spirituality, like Ibn al-Qayyim, right, very famous uh, scholar, uh, 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 Imam al-Ghazali, for instance, you know, they make this interesting analogy between the human being being uh, not an angel, not like angels, and not like animals. And yet it's very unique. Because with angels, whatever they're commanded, they do. They're beings that are pure and you know, made of pure light, whatever it might be. They have this purity and they can never disobey Allah, right? Animals, in a similar sense, can never disobey Allah because there's no inner reality or inner um, kind of inner morals, let's say, or inner soul that gives them some sort of decision-making cap um, capacity in terms of morals, right? So whenever they feel hungry, because that's what, that's how they are naturally, they eat. Whenever they want to have relations, they do that, right? There's no concept of, you know what, I shouldn't do this. It's not like a lion is chasing down a gazelle and the gazelle said, stop. What I find you're doing is it's morally reprehensible, <laughs> sir. You know, it's, it's, that's how they are naturally, right? So the animals have this, you know, physical desire that defines them. And the angels have a certain reality that defines them. The human being is a constitution of both of these type of elements. The ruh is part of that angelic reality that you have. And the body, the badan, is part of the animal reality. And so when you obey Allah, you're spiritually connecting with the creator of the heavens and the earth who put that ruh inside of you, put that soul inside of you. And so you become better than the angels because you did it by way of a free choice, right? And when you choose to just go with your desires, like I do what I want, right? And I'm just going to eat when I want to eat. I'm going to basically have relations, whoever I want to have relations with, whatever it might be, you become worse than the animals. You see, right? And so that position is something that's uniquely human. And we have by way of what our actions, we can become better than angels and worse than animals. And so when we forget ourselves, that spiritual reality, we've disconnected ourselves from Allah. We've forgotten Allah. So anyways, that was a bit of a tangent, but... I actually forgot the initial question. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense though. Yeah. It makes sense because if, if you think about it, like when we are given something, whether yeah. it be from a family member or a friend, yeah. we we thank them, right? We're grateful. And like, and if it's something that we're using on a day-to-day -day basis, like we may thank them multiple times. We may thank them till that thing just no longer works anymore. Even then we still might thank them. Right. And right. like you're saying, when if if someone is just saying, ah, oh, well, it's my body, I'm just gonna do whatever I want, it's it's initially like you're giving a gift and you're just like, all right. <laughs> you don't you're not even you're not even thankful, you're not even grateful for it. Right. No, it's true. Because then the idea is are you worshiping God or are you worshiping yourself? Right. Like so. no. you, you, <laughs> I mean it's it's your choice, right? No, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. 
That's just, you're going to, you're going to have servitude to something. Either it's going to be yourself and your own base desires, right? Or it's going to be the one that created you. And true freedom really comes from the one by, by submitting to the one that created you because he knows you, he knows what he created, right? Does he not know what he created? Of course he does, right? Is he not looking for your best interest? Of course he is. Do you have the entirety of, of the spectrum of knowledge to know what's good for you? No, your knowledge is limited, man. So if your knowledge is limited, it's like when, when you go to the doctor, you know, you don't, you don't mistrust the doctor and say, look, man, you know, like you want me to take this medicine, but I'm not going to trust this until, you know, I go to medical school, I go through the entire degree process <laughs> and all that stuff. And then I'll understand. Well, no, right. You have a concept of trust and it's, you know, and obviously the, the highest examples with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but there's not, there's no reason why that becomes something of a negative aspect. That's a positive thing that you've now taken the breadth of knowledge that comes from the creator of the heavens and the earth. And you're tapping into that because you realize that as a human being, your knowledge is going to be limited. That's part and parcel of being human is that you have limited knowledge. Like as Allah says, we've only given you just a minuscule amount of knowledge, right? And when the Quran mentions the knowledge of Allah, this is like if all the trees became pens and the oceans were ink and you tried to, you know, uh, you know, expound upon the knowledge of Allah, you would still not exhaust the knowledge of Allah. Right. So there's that knowledge. And then there's your limited knowledge and you're making all of these, you know, profound, deep, you know, decisions. And, you know, you're, you're judging people. I always tell people, I say, you know, the, 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 the term prejudice, it comes to, from, you know, prejudging. Like you don't know the reality of that human being that you've judged. You don't know where they're coming from. You know, you don't know their background. You don't know how their day went. You don't know if they had an argument with their spouse in the morning. You don't know if they're just about to get a divorce, nothing about them. And you're making judgments based on this little bit of knowledge. You know, it's really, when you think about the human being from an external point of view, it's really fascinating because the things that we do as humans, you know, it's just, uh, it's just, it's funny sometimes, right? We make these prejudgments and, you know, we don't, we don't think about, well, what am I judging? How am I, how am I judging this person? You know? And at the end of the day, do I want good for this person? But anyway, so. Subhanallah, man. Why don't you go a little bit deeper into the, into the row? Okay. So let's see, where do we want to go from here? How about this? Let me, let me mention something related to the Quran, right? Mm -hmm. Perfect, man. And um, so there is, let me see here. Let me just, uh, there's actually something I wanted to share with you guys, which I think you will, you'll appreciate. Um, and this goes back to kind of the, 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 uh, the precision of the Quran and how, um, how amazing the Quran is. Okay. And in the Quran, there's a linguistic tool, uh, which they call iltifat, which are grammatical shifts. Okay. And so you'll find that sometimes when Allah is speaking to a person, it'll be in the first person, right? Like you. Or another time, it'll be talking to the third person, like he, she, it. And in certain circumstances, Allah will be talking about himself, like I, we, you know, I did this, we did this. And when that shift happens, those shifts are very profound, right? So there's a, sh a grammatical shift related to the ruh in Surah Al-Sajdah, right? And I think... I mean, I thought it was pretty mind-blowing. I don't know. Maybe you guys might, might not. I don't know. But Surah Sajda, um, 
it, it basically it's, there's a, when you go to I number, I'm trying to get the number here. Yeah. So I number seven, uh, actually I number six starts with Allah, right. Uh, that, you know, that he is Allah, so on and so forth. And then it goes on. I number seven says, ahsana kulla khalaqahu wa insani min teen. That he is the one who perfected everything he created. And he, orig- and he originated the creation of human, uh, humankind from teen, from clay. All right. So now um, let me ask you guys, are you guys familiar with, I'm going to get in some English grammar now, first person, second person, third person. What's first person? You didn't get, you guys didn't think you could get tested, did you? <laughs> you want us to respond? Yeah, man. Okay. That's what makes this fun. Like, I'm, I'm going here. Perfect. All right. That's first person. What's second person? You're going there. Brilliant. And of course, third person, he, she, it, right? So this verse, um, the one who has perfected everything he created and he originated the creation of humankind from clay. Is this a first person, second person, or third person? Third what, person. Third person. Brilliant. Okay. The next verse. Uh, and then he made his descendants from an extra, an extract of humble fluid. In other words, sperm, right? All right. First person, second person, or third person? Same. Same. Third person. All right. So we're third person. So he's talking about the creation of the human being in general, created from, uh, from clay. Then he's talking about generations moving forward, like through sexual relations, so again, it's third person that that's how generations move forward. He made his, he made, uh, you know, his descendants, human beings, descendants from an extract of sperm, basically extract of humble fluid. And then, and this is the part, right? And then he fashioned them, he put them together and then he blew or the spirit, the ruah into this creation. First person, second person, or third person. Same. We're still at third person, right? Now, Here's where the grammatical shift happens. And then he gave you hearing, sight, and intellect. Now, why is that remarkable? Because up to this point, it was all third person. He did this to that particular thing, that particular thing. After he puts the ruh inside the human being, now because you have a ruh inside of you, you have a consciousness, he can address you. Mm. Right. So now he's seeing, hearing and sight and mind. Why? The whole reason that you can function, you can see something is not the mechanical function of the eye. What really how you see things is by that that consciousness, that soul. Right. Otherwise, it's just a mechanical object that is your eye that has a lens. But what truly sees? So that grammatical shift happens in the Quran because of how that reality is, is manifest. You get that? I mean, I thought that was pretty mind blowing. I don't know. Maybe you guys, uh, <laughs> like, that's no, yeah, right. <laughs> it definitely is. You know, so um, so when it comes to the ruh, one of the other things uh, that's interesting about that is um, like the month of Ramadan. I think this is really fascinating. When you know what? When you think about the month of Ramadan, what what defines the month of Ramadan? And I don't mean the religious answer like taqwa or something. I'm just saying. Let's say you ask a non-Muslim, like who has some knowledge of Islam, what, what is the thing that you think about when you think about Ramadan? Fasting. Fasting, right? Like you think you, you can't eat, right? Like that, man, that must suck, right? So you just can't eat, man, from sun up to sundown. So the thing is, is that when you think about 
um, the, the, the person who's on this spiritual path to be connected with God. 11, it's like 11 months of the year, you're basically eating whatever you want in general. I mean, I'm not talking about the certain limitations we have like pork or whatever, but general, you can eat whatever you want 11 months out of the year. And this one month of the year, it's Allah is telling us, look, from sunup to sundown, that thing that's allowed 11 months of the year, you're not going to do that, you know? So that sustenance, that, that, that food that you eat to sustain your physical body, you're going to limit that, all right? When we talk about the physical body, where does its sustenance come from? Where does it, like, you eat from the ground, right? I mean, eventually, I'm not talking about like, yeah, maybe McDonald's is the exception. No, no, I'm kidding. But, but generally, like the food you get is from the earth, right? It's not from outer space or anything. It's, it's like from the ground, like even the cows or whatever, you, whatever it is that you eat. It's from, so the human being, in order to sustain its body, it eats from the same source as it, it was created, right? So we just read it was created from clay. It was created from the earth, right? So that's your physical body. But you also have a ruah. So if you want to sustain the ruah, you want to give your ruah nutrition, what gives the ruah nutrition? And the thing is, is that when the question of what is the ruah or what is it, what is its reality? Um, there's a verse in the Quran where uh, Allah says, yes, they ask you concerning the ruah. They ask you about the ruah, this soul they're asking about. And the response is, Qul, say, Say that the ruh is from the command of God, right? Now, this command of God, you know, it, it's, it, it takes various forms. And so one of the ways in which this command works is that when Allah says something or commands something, it just happens, right? So, When he commands, when he orders a matter, he merely says to it, be, and it starts to exist. And, you know, as human beings, we have a hard time getting our heads around that sometimes. Like, it's just a word. But we do that in the, in the, in the area of, if you ever study the philosophy of language, there's, this, there's a concept of, like, our words becoming our actions. That when we say something, it's, it's the action. Like, when you congratulate someone, how do you do that? You, congrat you say congratulations. The word is the action, right? Or if you want to thank someone, thank you. Well, that, the word is the action. And of course, the highest example is with Allah. So when he wants to bring something into reality, he says, be, and it is. So what, this ruah, it comes from this, the, the amr, the, the command of God. And how does the command of God work? It works by his words, okay? So do we have access to the words of God, the words of Allah? Of course, it's Quran, right? So in the month of Ramadan, it's like that body, that animal desire that you have, you're being told to constrict it, all right? To calm it down. And when it comes to the soul, the ruah, you're told now to do what? At night, recite the Quran. Now, the body is getting its sustenance from the place it came from. The ruah is getting its sustenance because why? It comes from the amr, the command of God, which is by way of his words. And the Quran is the words of God. So that recitation is giving that sustenance to the soul. So you're elevating the soul in Ramadan and you're kind of depleting the body, you know? And sometimes, uh, you know, they give the example of a horse rider, right? So you're riding a horse 
And, um, you know, your soul is basically the rider. Yeah. And so when you're going to be riding this horse, you want to, you know, if, if, if the horse is well fed, it'll take you wherever it wants. Right. Cause it's got all the energy wherever it wants to go. Right. That's like your, your desires, your, your animal base state. So when you're well fed and your and your soul and the rider's weak, the soul is weak. The horse will take you wherever it wants you to go. But in the month of Ramadan, you're weakening that horse, right? You're not giving it food and you're strengthening the rider. And so now you're in more control than the, you're in control of the horse, right? And that's what the month of Ramadan, in fact, does. It's to elevate the soul by way of the Quran and to weaken the body. And so that's why even during the year, we're recommended to fast like Mondays and Thursdays, you know, the three days of the month. Why? It's not just in a vacuum. It's to develop you spiritually. You know, a lot of times people look at like the physical fitness aspect of fasting and they miss the point of that it has a, a spiritual significance that is just amazing when you think about it. Yeah. So. And a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's the thing, man. Uh, when it comes to your, your reality, your reality is one of a, of a spiritual being. And once you understand that about human beings in general, how you approach them is going to be very different, right? Yeah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. I'm like rethinking my entire way of life now. MashaAllah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hopefully yeah, for the we're better. Ready. <laughs> we're ready for all these paradigm shifts. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that's, you know, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another interesting one. Um, and this one, I think it gets people sometimes. If I asked you, um, this goes back to a concept of the fitra, but if I asked you, um, how would you categorize rationality? Like how many categories do you think it has, right? Most people would say you have things that are rational or things that are irrational. Things either make sense or they don't make sense, right? So a rational statement would be something like, you know, I am Fahd. That's a rational statement. An irrational statement is like, hey man, I'm a married bachelor, right? So if I come to you, imagine I come to you and I say, I'm a married bachelor. I mean, what are you going to say? I mean, what, like, are, you, you try to convince me towards sanity, right? Like, okay, so how, right? So what would you say to me? Like, if I said, I'm a married bachelor, what, help me out here. Like, I would just be like, okay, that's nice. Here's the number to the, to the local, you know, insane asylum. Or what, what are you going to do, right? Yeah. Like, what, how do you approach that? You just oh, ask how that works. Honest, yeah. Ask how that know? works. And you're like, well, it's just, it just works because I said it works. That's just how it is, man. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean doesn't it make what do you mean doesn't make sense? I think it does. Those are two polar opposites. They can't exist at the same time. Well, you say they can't exist at the same time. I say they can. <laughs> what what I'm getting at is that look, in order for this particular idea to not make sense, you we understand that a bachelor is someone who's not married. Okay, and someone who's married is not a bachelor. So they're they're what they call mutually exclusive. Okay. That's a logical principle. But let's say I come now and say, look, I want you to prove the principle. Can you do it? I'm not saying prove it wrong. I'm saying prove the principle itself. Mm. You can't prove the principle. So okay. the logic, you have right. to have a starting point that you cannot prove, but you have to accept. Mm. And in philosophy, they call these first principles or basic beliefs. Yeah. You can't prove them, but you can't move forward unless, unless you agree to them, Right. And so in reality, rationality has three categories. You have that which is irrational, that which is rational, and that which lies outside of rationality, which you might call super rational. From the Islamic standpoint, 
that which is outside of rationality is the fitra, right? That original base state. So part of the fitra is things like logical principles. You can't prove them, but you have to start with them, right? Things that are part of the fitra are your, um, your, your aesthetic sense, right? Like if you go and you see a sunset and you look at your, your friend or your spouse or whatever, and you say, man, that's beautiful. And the guy says, dude, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Prove to me rationally that's a beautiful sunset, right? Can you do it? No, right? Because that is a, a point that you can't, it's just, it is what it is, right? There's no sort of rational proof. And, you know, and, and other things like your sense of smell, like you walk in a room and something smells terrible and some guy walks in and he's like, take it in, bro. It's amazing. You're like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, no, prove to me rationally that that, you know, it's, it stinks in here. It's, so these concepts, we say that they're outside of rationality. Now, the issue that arises is that if someone says, no, I say you can prove everything, right? I say you can have, you can have a rational proof for everything. There's a certain problem with that because when you're demanding a rational proof for something, you're asking the question, why? You have a doubt, right? I'm not going to believe it until you prove it. So you, you doubt. So you ask why. You cannot ask why infinitely. You cannot just say there's no theorem that is infinitely defendable. You can't say why, why, because, because this, because it, to infinity, there has to be a stopping point. It's like I tell people, like my son, he walks in the kitchen and he takes out the knife from whatever the, the place. And I say, Abdurrahman, put that back. He's like, why? I'm like, well, because it's sharp, you know, and it, it'll cut you. He's like, why? I'm like, well, because it's sharp. He's like, well, why? I'm like, well, because they manufactured it like that. He's like, well, why? I'm like, well, because knives are used for cutting things. He's like, why? I'm like, well, because you can cut fruit. He's like, well, why? I'm like, fruit is better when it's cut. He's like, why? At a certain point, it's like, because I said so, I'm your dad, man, right? There's no, like, <laughs> you can't ask why infinitely. There mm -hmm. has to be a stopping point because what you're saying is I doubt what you're saying and you cannot doubt things infinitely because here's the other thing. If you say I doubt everything, then you have to doubt your doubt yeah. and that leaves you intellectually paralyzed, right? <laughs> And yeah. so, you know, there are certain names of Allah, Al-Wahid Al-Qahar, right? The one and the one who is the compeller. You're compelled into a position of having an absolute that you, whether you accept it or not, you have to believe in an absolute. And from our perspective, Allah is Samad, Allah is the absolute, right? So rationality is an amazing tool, but it needs something external to it, right? So it's like someone who comes and says, I have the perfect solvent, it can, it can dissolve anything. You just pour it, it'll dissolve through, right? But you want to ask that person, what bottle are you going to keep it in? You might have the perfect solvent. You still need a bottle, right? It is not absolute. Mm. The term absolute comes from that which is soluble, right? Absolute is not soluble, not solvable. You cannot prove everything to, you know, wit's end. You mm. have to have a starting point. Now, when you come to the Quran, what's interesting is that, like I said, does Allah not know what he created? He knows that he created this human being on this state of fitrah. And so when, when you go to the Quran, you'll notice there are not like discursive arguments that are presented in the Quran. Like, you know, like, you know how we reason, we say premise A, premise B, therefore C, right? You're not going to find that in the Quran. Rather, what you find is an attract or, or there, there is, there are ayat, the concept of an ayah is very different than a, a pure rational argument. That doesn't mean that there's no rational arguments in the Quran. But what an ayah does 
is that it now targets not like if you think about the three levels of rationality, you've got your super rational, rational, irrational, right? Your fitra, your aql, and whatever is ghayr aql, right? You've got, so those three categories. The Quran, in fact, is targeting these top two, the fitra plus rationality, not just rationality, but both of them. And ayah is in fact more powerful than just a pure rational argument, right? Because what's an ayah? So an ayah, um, like sometimes they say it's a sign, right? And they have this whole study called semiotics, which is very interesting when you talk about the study of signs. And a sign, if you think about it, um, like the term ayah, it comes from the trilateral root, alif, ya, ya. And so if you're going to distinguish something from something else, you're going to say, ayu, right? Ayu amal afdal. Which of these actions are the best? So you've got a whole bunch of items. You want to pick one out. So what an ayah does, in, in fact, it has two kind of primary characteristics. Number one, it's not time-bound. It's immediate, right? Number two, there's no information transfer, meaning you don't have to go to university to figure out here's an ayah. So just to give you an example. So I mentioned I, I graduated from Michigan State, right? So imagine now that I, um, it's, it's 10, 20 years later, I'm unpacking my stuff and I find my, my, my cap and my gown, right? That I wore to, to, to my graduation ceremony. Now, as soon as I pull it out, immediately I'm taken back to the day I graduated, right? Like the look on my parents' face, you know, the fact that my last name starts with a T and I had to wait for 200 people before I was able to go on stage, that annoyance immediately comes back. Did I learn new information? No. But that became an ayah, quote, a sign for something that was just already deep inside of myself. So what an ayah does, it takes that reality within yourself and brings it to the surface, right? And that can happen in different ways. But the Quran uses that as a tool. And why? Because the human construct cannot survive. You cannot have an argument without the fitra. You cannot have a, a, a first principle less argument, right? It's like me just saying, Okay, I'm a married bachelor, prove the principle. You can't, you have to assume it, right? That's why the target is the first principle. SubhanAllah, that's amazing. So what do you say, this might sound basic, right? We believe the Quran is 100% true. Yeah. So what do you say to, to an extent, most or a lot of what's in the Quran is just a series of first principles and then we can come to rationally understand it? No, I wouldn't say that the, the majority of the Quran's first principles, right? I'm saying that ayat are those things that are, are going to basically be something that the fitra and the aql recognize, the fitra and the, and the rationality recognize. I'm not saying it's going to be fitra only, although it could be. Yeah. But it's not devoid of rationality either. Because mm -hmm. then that's the other thing to say, like, it's only the fitra. It's only your, that, that, that that state you were created upon, yeah. right? But that's not true either because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that we, you know, right? do, do, we, do they not use their intellect? Yeah. But the idea is that it's not an intellect in a vacuum. It's an mm. intellect with the fitrah, right? So you wouldn't say that, um, that the whole thing is just first principles because yeah. in essence, even logically, that would be problematic. I don't want to get into how, but it just, it, it would break down, right? Yeah. Because you need to have first principles and build your arguments from there, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. SubhanAllah. Yeah, the, the reason I mentioned that is because a lot of the time you'll have a very specific ayah in the Quran yeah. that we build full deductive arguments from. Yeah. Right, like Imam al-Ghazali taking um, where they created from nothing and so on yeah. and so forth and coming to the um, Kalam cosmological argument. Yep, yep. So, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. So a lot of those arguments, 
like a lot of times I'm not, I'm not sure how effective they are. Like in a, in a, just a conversation with someone, you know, sometimes those arguments, I mean, yeah, they're very powerful. And for some people, it may be a means by which their, their fitra would be unclouded. Like they, they'd be able to see kind of like, okay, the, the, the basis behind it. But sometimes, man, I mean, especially when it comes to, to the existence of Allah, I really feel it's, it's usually something else. It's either like a traumatic experience the person had, like they may have lost a loved one to cancer or something, right? And they're just dealing with that and they kind of just reject that. Or it's the environment that they're in. And a lot of times we, we take this almost overly sophisticated, you know, academic approach when that's not the medicine that's required, right? They need something else. They need, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, a, a spiritual, you know, uh, like, you know, something that'll kick their spiritual endorphins in, 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 into action, right? And which doesn't have to do with, here's the Kalam cosmological argument with all deference to that. I mean, I'm not saying don't use them. I'm saying like, we have to understand the human being at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just had a quick question. So did sure. you uh, yourself make episode three or four of the No Doubt series? I think I did four and five. Okay, yeah, I had, I had a feeling. I, I knew I knew where I got that from. Ah, okay, okay. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, so... Yeah, so that's um, that's generally the, the approach that I have when it comes to Dawa and understanding the human being. Um, and then that gives us a, a nice way to um, move forward, both from our both from ourselves when we understand what is the reality of ourself versus just the um, just this like, you know, robotic reality, this material reality. Right. And the material world, man, it's going to it's going to distract you. Right. Your animal self is going to be constantly calling out and saying, man, just just eat now, sleep now, you know, do this now. And um, and we you know, it, it it becomes important for us to kind of reconnect with Allah and kind of come back, you know. And a lot of times, you know, when we're making dawah to people, what we're in essence trying to do is to get them to understand who they are. Like, what is the the ontological reality of this person? You know, like, you know, you spent your whole life and, and maybe like core existential questions are, are just, they've never been answered. You know, I mean, one of the things that I, I tell when I, when I speak to Muslims specifically, I say, you know, when you think about existential questions, questions about your existence, how did you get here? where, you know, what's your purpose and what happens when you die, you know, maybe growing up, those questions were answered. And so there's this, this existential comfort that you have, right? Like those questions are answered. So I don't have to worry about what's the purpose of life, right? And I'm not worried about like, like what happens after I die. Like I already know that. And now I can work in that worldview and that paradigm. But for someone that doesn't know about Islam, um, those are open questions, and those are things that can deeply affect someone to the point where if you don't know the answer to those questions, it can drive you mad. Like you guys have heard um, Hamza's like airplane example, right? Have you guys heard that example? I believe so. I believe so. All right. So maybe Rami's heard. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll go through it again. It's, it's a really good example where, I mean, it's basically like a thought experiment. And, and um, you, know, he, you know, the example is just this, that like as you're listening to me talk right now, imagine you black out and then you wake up and you're on a plane. All right. And you're in first class and the seats are really comfortable. And, uh, you know, you look outside and, and, and the view is gorgeous. It's like that orange hue, you know, like right before sunset. So it's very pleasing to the eyes, you know, 
uh, and the temperature is perfect. You know, one of the issues we have here in Houston is everyone's always fighting over the air conditioning, right? So the temperature in the plane is just how you want it. It's perfect. And after a few minutes, you know, they come with the food. So, you know, you get halim, <laughs> whatever your favorite food is. And you put this food in your mouth, steak, halim, burgers, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And it just melts. It's like the best you've ever had. Yeah. So you're, you were here listening to me talk. You blacked out. Now you're on a plane, first class, seats are comfortable. Would you be happy? Now you might man, say, yeah. I, I'd, be, I'd be thinking like this man drugged me. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, but your question would be, how did I get here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that, that's why yeah. you're asking, how, does this person drug me? Like, how did I get here? You know, and then, and, then, and, then, and then what am I doing here? And I usually say, my question would be like, where is the damn plane going, man? Like, where is this plane going, right? Like, okay, I'm here. But from a, from a certain sense, your life, you come into a state of consciousness like that. Like at a certain point, you're on this metaphoric plane. And if those questions aren't answered, it's like you're on that plane and you have this discomfort. Where is this plane going? Why am I on this plane? You know, and where did I come from? And where's, where, what happens, you know? And just like, so human beings... If you don't have those questions answered because, you know, you're like Islam hasn't been what you were brought up in or you've never been exposed to Islam. These are deep questions. And a lot of times when people are coming to argue with you and they want to debate with you, those core questions are still kind of lingering. And if you miss those questions, you've missed the boat in a sense. Right. You can get into these nuanced areas of like the existence of God and, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument and Madriyesh, I don't know, whatever. Right. So. You can get into those things and that's fine. And maybe that's what the person needs, but maybe the person is really just on this journey and they have no idea of where they're supposed to be going. And you just presenting to them Islam, say, look, man, you know, this journey, this metaphoric journey that you're on, it's just about you. You came from uh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You know, this being that is the most merciful, the one that you're going to return back to. You know, your purpose in life is to worship praise and submit to Allah, right? That's why you were created, right? I did not create the human beings and the jinn except for worship. And what happens when you die? When you die, you're going to be judged for your actions, right? And so that is the entire construct, entire worldview that so many people have no idea about because they're just lost in the stratosphere of Islam is evil and y'all were just a bunch of terrorists. And also, so they're, they're, they're missing the boat but from another perspective, we're not presenting like, hey, this is Islam, right? This is the existential comfort that comes with someone who is on a journey towards the hereafter and on a journey towards spiritually connecting with Allah, you know? So I think that, you know, I just, so with all deference to the arguments, like I actually teach the arguments. We do a class called uh, the divine reality based on Hamza's book. So it's like, a, you know, we're going to like 13 weeks or whatever. And I've, I've gone through them, like from objective morality, you know, and, and, and first principles and all these different arguments that, that he reads. And they're really good arguments. Don't get me wrong. But even in the introduction to the book, he mentions that he says, you know, this is just a stepping stool, right? This is a, this is a tool and you really have to be like a doctor, right? To understand what is the medicine this person needs, right? It can be rational arguments, but it might just be, you know, answering existential questions. It might be experiences, man. Like a lot of times we, we downplay experiences, you know? Um, and I always think, I said, you know, if you think about someone's experience, that is more powerful than just trying to rationally convince yourself of something, you know? 
like, okay. So there's an interesting thought experiment um, back in, I think it was 1985 conducted by Frank Jackson. It's called Mary's room. Have you heard about it? No. So it's really interesting. He, he does it. He, he presented this thought experiment talking about is experience real or is it, is experience knowledge? Right. And so he says that, imagine that there's a woman named Mary and she is an expert in color theory. Like she knows, and she, she has a PhD in color theory and she has a PhD in neuroscience. So she understands the neurological functioning of the brain, like better than anyone. And she understands the concept of color, like the, the, the spectrum and all of these things. However, Mary has been in a black and white room her entire life. And everything around her is black and white. The, the computer she's working on, the chalkboard, the books, all, but she knows color theory. She's a PhD in both of these color theory and uh, neurology or, 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 you know, and so she understands all of these things. And so, and, but her whole life has just been surrounded with black and white. Now, at one point, her computer, her laptop malfunctions and a red apple shows up. Has she gained some sort of knowledge? That's the question, right? Like you understand, it's all black. So now she already, she's got the expertise in terms of ilm, in terms of knowledge, but does that experience of red, has that added something to her knowledge or is that just something else? Do you get what I'm saying? There would be cementing. Yeah, and, and a lot, and the and from the Islamic con, uh, construct, experience actually has a, a, a pretty high level. So, um, within the Islamic construct, you find, for instance, the idea of certainty, and within Islam, certainty has three levels, right? So, in the Quran, as you as you go through it, you find there's something called, um, you know, certainty is called yaqeen. So you have ilmul yaqeen, like not like knowledge that you're certain about, right? Then you have Ainul Yaqeen, like knowledge that you've seen, like you know something by way of visualization. And then you have Haqqul Yaqeen, something that you experience and you've experienced it. And because you experienced it, you know it's a reality, right? So, you know, I think uh, Ibn Al-Qayyim mentioned the example of someone presenting to you honey, right? So someone tells you that there's this really good honey. It has, it's, um, it tastes amazing and you trust this person. So you have a level of certainty because of your trust of the person. So that's like Ainul Yaqeen. Like you're, you've kind of viewed it, maybe not directly, but indirectly because you're hearing it from this person. But at a certain point, what happens is, is that you have, so you have this knowledge, then you see the honey and you smell the honey, right? So someone told you about it. You have a knowledge of it. Now you see it and you smell it. It smells good. So that's another, another level of certainty. But then when you taste the honey, now your level of certainty has gone through the roof, right? Now you're absolutely certain because you've tasted it yourself, right? So you've got three levels. And in fact, um, scholars mentioned that this is really important when it com comes to the concept of how, you know, how you die, basically, right? Like every human knows they're going to die. Like, like they, they have the knowledge they're certain about, right? Very few people say like, yeah, I'm not going to die, <laughs> right? I mean... If someone says that, you might want to tell them, like, look, man, you know, like you're trying to tell me, like, you know, you go to one of these highways out in LA and your head doesn't come off. Like, come on, dude, like you're not going to die. But most people know that for a fact. Like we all know we're going to die. It's, it's, it's a knowledge that's there. Okay. And then from like, when you go through the Quran, you see that when you're about to die, when you're at the last throes of your death, you see the angel of death coming. So your level of certainty upon seeing the angel of death is much higher now, right? 
And then when your soul is being taken out of your body, you're experiencing death. And so now your level of certainty is even higher. So you move from, you know, ilmul yaqeen, the knowledge, aynul yaqeen, sight, right? That, that uh, ocular sight that you have to haqqul yaqeen, like experiential knowledge, because you now, ex you experience, I mean, it's too late now, but you get what I mean, right? So certainty has levels as well. And so sometimes my point, what I was trying to say is sometimes an experience for someone can be more powerful than the rational arguments you present to them. You could take someone to like, you know, let's see, goes, you know, because we're talking about, you know, Canada and the US here, you could take someone to the Niagara Falls, the Canada side, right? Okay, obviously. And so, because if you've been there, you know, the American side is not as, uh, not as nice as the Canadian side. Anyway, so you take them to Niagara Falls, sometimes just that, that state of awe that a person enters into, because awe is a reality. You experience awe when you go to a, a you know, like a, like a mountainous area, just the grand, the grandeur of, of the mountain makes you feel really small. And you have this feeling that, how do you describe it? You know, you, you can't. And yet that experience could be the means for you to say, look, man, think about the one who created all of that. Think about the reason, you know, like think about if, if you feel like that in the state from a mountain or from a waterfall, that's just grandiose. Think about the one who created the mountain, the, the waterfall or the one who created the mountain. How, what sort of state of all will you be in as you're facing that being, you know? So sometimes it's not just rational arguments. It's not just existential questions. Sometimes it's experience, man. You know, I mean, uh, Hamza always says that, you know, if, if, if someone comes and says, hey, man, can I pray with you? He'd be like, yeah, let's pray. Because you don't know if that salah, that prayer will actually be the experience that brings them into Islam, right? So as a person who's calling people to Islam, we understand that we have a lot of different tools within our toolbox and we have to act like merciful doctors or teachers as we're bringing people in, right? We don't only have rationality. We've got a whole toolbox, because the human being is complex, right? It's not a simple, logical robot. So, anyway. Well, uh, so, Fahad, have you been to Niagara Falls? I'm assuming you have, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been to Niagara Falls, yeah. Yeah, Anil, have you? Man, do you remember those... those Grand uh, Canyon? I mean, you've been to Grand it's kind of overrated. Never. You haven't been to Grand is Canyon? It, is it really overrated, though? Really? Yeah, you, remember, you remember the waterfalls we've been to in Iceland? Yeah, that was those beautiful. nice ones that like parking was free. There were like three, four people there. That's yeah. the equivalent of Niagara Falls. Except Niagara Falls, you got thousands of people going daily, parking 20, 30, 40 bucks. It's crowded. You can't even get anything. But then when we were in Iceland, we saw things like that every day. No parking, no admission fee, just everywhere. Just, yeah. you know, creations of a lot. And we were mm. just in awe. Mm. So trust me, trust me when I tell you, bro, Niagara Falls is overrated. <laughs> I wouldn't know, it, man. Bro, this is this is all tying in with what Fahad is saying. Man. Mm -hmm. yes. Where it's like, oh, I'm a I'm a married bachelor. <laughs> so, well, how is that true? Oh, it's, just is, just yeah, is, just is. There you go. But Fahad, like, I have it, I have a question. I right, go, sure. go for it. I'll let you go. I'll let you go first. I'll let you no, go I was first. gonna say, bro, this the self created perceived value of Niagara Falls. It's just it's it's annoying, man. Like every time we have a relative from. You know, because I'm from Bangladesh, right? If we have people from back home, we got people that don't know what it is or what it do. We got to be like, all right, yo, get in the Camry. 
Let's let's pack your bags. Let's let's go to let's go to Niagara Falls Every- for the day. Yeah, man, you already know, man. And and it's like they see it and they're like, "Yo, I was like, I waited my whole life for this moment just to like see the falls." And I'm like, "Man, this is the the 115th time this year, man. I'm here." Like, you know, I'll, I'll tell you another, like another one that really gets me, which I think is really odd, is have been, have any of you guys been to to Mecca and seen the Kaaba? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So may Allah subhanahu wa taala make it easier for you guys and allow you to to go for Hajj or Umrah. Inshallah. Um, the thing is, if you, if you ask someone that sees the Kaaba for the first time, like they will never be able to explain it to you because you're just in a state of awe. And it's just, you can't explain it. Like the, I remember when, when, when the first time that I went uh, for Umrah with my wife and we had gotten there right like just before sunrise. And, you know, we got there and we walked in and we saw the Kaaba and it was, it's, you can't describe it. And I looked over my wife and she had tears coming down her eyes. And it was just, you're in this state of awe, you know? And, and inshallah, when you guys, you will see that for yourself, man. It's just, how do you explain that? Because it's not necessarily the thing that you're looking at. Because in essence, what are you really looking at? You're looking at a cube, right? I mean, just why would that, why would that have any sort of impact on you, you know? But it does. And it's just, you can't describe it. And, and you, you can't imagine someone saying like, well, rationally prove to me that, that, you know, that state of awe is justified. It's not a question of rationality. It's your experience, you know? Um, yeah. So, so you, none of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon. I have. No. no. So I'll tell no, you, have, uh, yeah. you have. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you something really funny. So talking about hype. So a lot of people like the Grand Canyon, you got to see it, this and that. And no. so my wife and I went, and she looked down and she's like, oh, man, it reminds me of Jahannam. It reminds me of the hellfire. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does she mean reminds her? <laughs> yeah, and it's just like, what she is this? Right? So she wasn't in a state of awe, that's for sure. She was just, you know, like, yo, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so sorry, you, you had a that's question, funny. man. Go for it. Sorry. Yeah. So, okay. Now that you've mentioned the soul and you've mentioned all these things, which, by the way, it's all enlightening. It's amazing. And you can tell we're all very quiet. We're just listening because it's this I hope is, so, uh, man. I hope these are like gems. Go, these are go sleep. <laughs> no, nah, nah, these are gems. These are all gems that you're dropping. So now something that I want to bring to the table. And you and I kind of briefly spoke about this on call um, a few days ago. But if you if you have a person who is talking about consciousness. And they're talking about guy consciousness. Mm. And, you know, I would, I would like you to go in depth in terms of like what consciousness is from an Islamic perspective, what the guy consciousness is as well. And then explain the differences and how like even if you attain guy consciousness, that doesn't mean that you yourself are God. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. So and it's, it's interesting that someone, like you mentioned, we, we might, might kind of, conflate the two right to say like god consciousness is just like conscious itself so consciousness like we mentioned this is like um an internal reality that everyone experiences right we're talking about experiential experiential knowledge so that's your consciousness that's that's your 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 crux your reality that's why you can see things you can hear things not the physical aspect of that but what is the thing that actually hears and sees right from an Islamic standpoint, that's part of your ruah. That's part of your soul. And your soul is created, right? And so um, 
when you talk about God consciousness, a lot of times the, the word that's translated as God consciousness is a word called taqwa, right? And uh, maybe it's a decent translation, but the word taqwa actually doesn't mean that you become one with God or anything like that, right? It means that you are constantly in the state of, um, constantly in the state of, of, of being careful when it comes to yourself. So you're conscious of your every action. And so when you're saying you're, you're conscious that God is watching you, if you want to look at it from that perspective. So from an Islamic standpoint, when we say God consciousness, we're not talking about like this merger of God and like consciousness or anything like that. We're talking about a person who's God conscious in the sense that they're conscious of God is watching me and I need to be on my best behavior, right? So like a, a simplified example might be like when you're gunning it down a road and then, you know, you see a cop and you slam the brakes, right? You just became, you know, cop consciousness or whatever, right? That's your state. <laughs> so a person who's God conscious, who's constantly in the state, they're always going to, let's say, treat their parents well, because they understand that, you know, if God is watching, I need to, I need to be on my best behavior. You know, they're going to be people who are charitable because they understand that the reality is that God is always watching and that I should be conscious of that. So that's a spiritual state that a person enters into between the relationship of a human being being limited and God who is unlimited, right? So any sort of concept of consciousness kind of just being one with God, this becomes problematic because A, it doesn't, it's not something that you can, um, let's say intellectually prove, right? And so this is where in the beginning, if you remember, I said, we understand fitra and then we understand rationality. We're not saying you throw away rationality, but what we're saying is understand that it has a basis. So here you may want to consider a rational argument to say, look, man, if we're talking about consciousness, were you always conscious, <laughs> right? That because, and you would experience that. And the reality is no, you, you weren't conscious when you were born. You didn't see yourself coming out, right? Or anything like that. So clearly there's a limitation. And when we think about the creation of the heavens and the earth, you think about that, that comes from a source that is infinite, that it's, 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 it's not limited. Yeah. So you're limited and you have that which is unlimited. You have a creator and then you are the being that's created. And so therefore you are by necessity not going to have a, some sort of a direct, like, you know, you're not going to be at one with God in some sort of mm -hmm. you know, pantheistic way, yeah. if that makes sense. SubhanAllah. Well, so, no, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. It's related, it's related. So wasn't there a hadith where Omar ibn Khattab was like describing taqwa with like the thorns and the, yeah, it's like, it's like basically when you're, when you're going through a thorny patch and you raise your, you raise your lower garment or izar and you try to make sure you're not stepping on the thorns, right? Mm -hmm. That's the example that was given, you know, um, that's what you're being conscious to just make sure you're not, you're being thorn conscious, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's similar, right? It's, yeah. uh, uh, you just, and, and there's other dimensions to it as well. So you can have like taqwa of Allah. And in the Quran, it's mentioned having taqwa of the hellfire, right? Mm. Right? You can, you know, be conscious of the fire because you don't want to enter it, right? So, you know, you be conscious of God because you don't want to anger God, right? Sometimes they talk about having taqwa of your spouse, right? Because you don't want to anger your spouse. So you have this spouse taqwa, right? Or, you know, you know spouse consciousness um, because you want to be careful. And so you understand that when a person sins, that could be, you know, that could be the means that, that could be a reason um, for Allah's anger. Right. And so you want to be careful with that. So the concept of consciousness against, you know, God consciousness, unfortunately, 
you know, translations sometimes do that where, you know, they take a certain concept and the concept itself is not like it is in the Arabic language, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so sometimes they translate as God, you know, fearing of God, but then that, that has another connotation. Are, are we saying that God is just some sort of wrathful, vengeful God that you should fear him? Well, no, it's not that either. Right. It's kind of like, it's this state of like awe, right? Like when you're in a state of awe, you are in a state of fear, but not in a fear where like, oh my gosh, it's like Freddy Krueger showed up. You're not in that sort of, or like Jason or whatever. That's not, not, not that kind of fear, but just the overwhelming, you know, mountain or whatever it is, you still have a concept of fear, but it's, it's one of awe, which is different, right? Yeah. yeah. I want to tie in a personal example now. Sure. The entire, I don't know if, if these two can relate, but me personally, I'm going to put myself out there now. I was in a state of all this entire conversation and I was scared I was going to say something dumb or interrupt you or, or kind of, you know, no, like mess up, the, mess up the flow. So I'm like, I'm fearful in that sense, but I don't fear you or anybody here, but I'm still in awe. So I feel like me, myself, I had to talk with this, this entire call. Male accepted, man. I mean, what were you going to say? But, um, okay, Fahad. So with everything you've said, uh, with what you said about the roof, what you said about the uh, the God consciousness? How do you how do you say the uh, the Arabic word? Taqwa. So T A Q W A. I want to say. Yeah, taqwa. All right. Yeah. So with everything you said about that, we can pretty much deduce from it that if one person is fully present, meaning that they're not thinking about anything, they're not thinking about the future, they're not thinking about the past, they're not repeating something in their head. If they're fully present. Yeah. just here like let's say they go outside and they see birds flying they're fully experiencing that yeah. that right there would just be um how do i refer to this as it would be you the ruh actually experiencing the dunya or having this experience and what it is like being in that plane and yeah. then you realizing oh i'm on this plane yeah yeah. You know, like, and you're just experiencing everything firsthand, but that doesn't mean that that's it, that that's the end. Right. Correct. Of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, man. Like some people get that twisted where they think that, okay, reaching that presence, reaching that ability to be a hundred percent present and having that uh, level of consciousness is the cream of the crop is enlightenment is what everyone should attain. And like, there's nothing else past that. Yeah, I mean, so the problem with something like that is that it becomes difficult to uh, substantiate that, right? So like, for instance, a lot of times I'll have conversations with Christians and, um, you know, they'll say, you know, I, I believe in God because of my, my experience, you know? And that's fine. Like, I, I, I don't have a problem with experience. I think experience is, is a valid form of, of getting to the truth. But I don't think it's the only form of getting the truth because you do at the end, it's not like you just turn off your rationale and say like, well, I experienced it. And so therefore that's, that's it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You still have a mind to think with, right. So if the two are not in step, um, you've got a problem, right. Even though you may be quote unquote experiencing something, but how do you know that experience is valid? Well, you have a tool and that tool is your mind, you know? So it's not one without the other, let's put it that way. So if you're, if you're saying that con- that's the, that, that's the final level, I'm going to reach a state of consciousness and that's it. I, I basically maxed out. Okay. But how do you know that? Mm. How do you get to the place where like, yes, I know that. How do you know that? Is it by way of that experience? Because if it's by way of that experience and that's only limited to you and only you can know that, you can't really convince anyone else of that. That's number one. Number two, 
how do you convince yourself of that, right? Mm. If it's not by way of rationality. Yeah. Man, like everything that you're saying and, and the, these points that I'm bringing up is because I had a conversation yeah, you mentioned with that, uh, yeah. a very close brother. Yeah, and it actually got even deeper than the little tiny bit that I mentioned over the call with you. Right. But um, he just he just kept going on about like consciousness and this whole aspect is like uh, that there's no God and that it's it's all consciousness. I'm like that doesn't make sense. Right. Like, you, you can't have it. And then and then I told him kind of like what you said, where it's like, all right, if you if you see this waterfall and it blows your mind it leaves you in awe imagine you seeing the creator or experiencing the creator yeah. imagine what that would leave you in right. it would leave you in submission it would leave you in prostration it right. would leave you just out of this world like something different we can't even explain what it would leave you in man and but- I, I told him the same thing man and right yeah no i mean look it, it's it leads to a whole bunch of problems too by the way like think about morality like how, how do you how do you how do you define morals then if you and the creator are one, then you just do what you want. You define morality, right? And it's like, if that's the case, then you can never make a moral claim that something is objectively moral. Now, what I mean by that uh, is that, you know, if if, if you ask someone, "Is, is, is rape wrong? And they said, well, yeah, of course it's wrong. So, okay, imagine the whole world came together and said that rape is okay. Would it be okay? And if the person says no, be like, okay, so you say that rape is objectively immoral. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not subject to a human beings' limited mind and emotion. Even if the whole world came together and said it was wrong, right, or said it was okay, you would still believe it's wrong. And if the person says yes, be like, okay, why? If that only comes from you, it's still subjective. You have to have an external source, right, by which you can have a moral anchor to attach that to. So if you're going to say that consciousness and that's it and there's all there is, what's your moral anchor? If it's just you, then it's still subjective. And it's just you, your opinion versus my opinion. You can never say something is morally correct or morally incorrect. Yeah, facts. Right? I, was, uh, I was telling him, like, you can't have consciousness without the creator. Yeah, exactly. Like, like where did it said, start? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you, the creator said, like, okay, now you'll be. And he, he put the roof. I don't really know how to say it yeah. perfectly, so forgive me if I am no, 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 it's all good. Uh, butchering it. But um, he, he put that in us, and he's giving us the ability to be conscious. Yeah, it's like you you can't have one without the other. So it's like yeah. when he when he, this guy brought up uh, both of them, and he was dismissing one and saying, "Well, it's only this." Right. I'm like, well, okay. Now you just you kind of stuck in between like a, an atheistic point and then like a, this new age point where like if you look at the new age yeah. people they really only believe in like consciousness spirituality right. and um i don't know i'm let me let me stop right there you understand I like, the whole point i like what Anhel just mentioned about you can't have one without the other because without god without allah you don't have consciousness but without consciousness you can't fully connect and understand allah that's true yeah. exactly yeah, I feel like yeah. the issue is a lot of the time, one like one extreme, the birth of one extreme births the other extreme, right? Yeah, so yeah. if you have people who are only like rational, logical deduction, that's it. Then yeah. you're going to have people that are like, okay, but what about the spiritual side? And then they turn only spiritually and they don't even want to deal with the logical part. And then you have right. the other side, people like even Muslims who grow up, they're told to, you know, have taqwa of Allah and all that. They're taught with just this, um, the spiritual side. They're never really taught the why. They're never yeah. really taught 
Um, this is why you need to connect to Allah. This is the logical side. This is how it's even provable in, uh, to a certain extent. So then they jump to atheism, new age atheism. They're like, oh, this is logical. I don't want any of that stuff anymore. Right, right. No, I mean, it's, dude, it's, it's, it's been a, um, what do you want to call it? It's a, uh, it's a perennial disease in the sense that it's not like it's just our generation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is from the very get-go. What was the problem with uh, Bani Israel, right? The, the, the mm-hmm. Jews from before. Their issue was that they were very stringent upon the letter of the law, like the, you know, the specific legal aspect. And they had completely forgotten the spirit of the law, right? So if something was haram, it was haram, no matter what, right? Even whether it's smaller, there's no sort of wisdom behind it, right? And so then you have a reaction to that, which is Christianity. And Christianity said, you know, forget the law. Everything is just, it's all good, right? Like <laughs> Jesus died for my sins, so I can just do what I want. So now you've got these extremes and Islam has always been in the middle. It's the book, the law, and the wisdom behind it. And so you take these in tandem. So even when, you know, and, and, and this is true for even the Muslim community. You have some people that are, that are really overly strict when it comes to, uh, you know, the halal and the haram, right? To the point where it's like the smallest minutia of something like, man, your beard, you know, it's not long enough. You're, you're an inch short, whatever. And, you know, this is just, and at the same time, this person is, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he's like, you know, he's, he's, he, he's surfing porn sites, you know, just, just as an example. So you've got this major issue that's going to you know, be detrimental spiritually, but you're so focused on the minutia and you've lost the entire idea, right? So you've got, even the Muslim community got that extreme as well. Then you have the other extreme in the Muslim community as well. All right, well, look, it's just all about spirituality. And as long as I'm a good person and everything's good, well, then I'm good, right? I don't need to worry about rules and regulations and all that stuff. And it's always about the middle because they have a connection with each other, right? You, you know, your, your spirituality is enhanced by following the law and, and by following the law, your spirituality is enhanced. And it's actually one works on the other. That's why when the Sahaba were described, Abdullah ibn Masood describes the Sahaba, the, the companions, he said they had knowledge upon action and action upon knowledge. Piety upon uh, piety upon knowledge and piety upon uh, and, and knowledge upon piety. It was circular. The more they would learn, the more they would get closer to God. And the more they get closer to God, the more that would allow them to learn. And so it was a balanced approach. And Islam, we have made you as a balanced middle nation, right? So when you're looking at and 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 you know uh, you know like if you're if you're here in the states, you're looking at kind of the the political area right like in terms of like you have like this extreme liberalism and you have this extreme conservatism right you've got like your republicans that are going nuts and you have your democrats that are going nuts right and islam is always in the middle right it's like you've gone like you know some of the stuff that conservatives say in general in the the political sphere is so crazy that it's like that's insane but at the same time you have people on the left side that are saying things that are crazy as well right because people, you know, they go to extremes and it's not a new issue. It's, it's, it's perennial. It's like, it's happens from the beginning. And the way to combat that is to have a connection with Allah and a connection with the Quran and constantly working on yourself and your relationship with Allah. You know? Mm. Alhamdulillah, man, that's powerful. I think connecting to Allah disconnects you from all these differences and limitations you, you can like, connect with all the other people around you. 
Like we think yeah. we're so different and we think, you know, this person's that or that person's that, but it really doesn't matter. And the perfect example from people that I know that went to Umrah and Hajj is when they go there, you got people that are black, white, Latino, American, you got, you got Asian people and it doesn't matter at the end of the day where you came from, what you do for a living, where you were born, where you were raised, what language you speak. You're all here for one cause. Yeah, man. I mean, your, your ruh doesn't have a color. <laughs> at least mm-hmm. one you can't perceive. <laughs> it's only your 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 material existence man and you're gonna make a judgment based on that thing which isn't really you anyway right mm-hmm. your reality is something that's not really you know based on on something as superficial as, as color or looks or skin tone or whatever it might be you know and that's what's you know that that's what's beautiful about even like when i went for hajj you're right man i mean there's no you're there in two sheets you know and, and you know the, the the thing is when 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 we die uh, the Muslim is buried in two sheets. Mm-hmm. So it actually brings your reality uh, closer in a sense, because it's reminding you of the inevitable end, you know, and as, as a spiritual tool, thinking about death is an excellent way for you to kind of wake up. If you're, if you come into this state of slumber with a relationship with Allah, right? In fact, the, the prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he even said, uh, make much mention of the destroyer of delights, al-maut, death, right? And so if you, if you think about death, you know, one of the things about um, American society is that they hate talking about death in general. There's a really interesting book called um, Will My Cat Eat My Eyes Out uh, by Kathleen Doty. And, um, and the book, she's a mortician. And so she deals with dead bodies, basically. So when, you know, when, you, when, when people die, she, she's the one that dresses them up, puts on the wax, whatever it is, and sets it up for people to come. And so as a mortician, she said um, that Americans are the most death illiterate people on the planet, right? Like we don't, we don't even want to, we, we have different words for it. Oh, they passed. You know, she passed away. Uh, they're in a better place. Like even the word, like if you went to someone and said, yo, he died. You know, it's almost like just the words themselves are, they just have a certain weight. You're just like, whoa, that almost disrespecting the person, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But the reality is what death does is that it brings you to a certain reality, a certain state that you understand that there are things that are more important than just the, 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 the ups and downs and the vicissitudes of life, right? That you're going to go back to Allah and that's inevitable, you know, and that constant, you know, reminder of death helps you spiritually because then it's not about what does this person think about me? How good do I look on Instagram? None of that's going to matter, right? You don't take your toys with you when you go, right? And you can have all the toys you want at the end. The end is the end. And so, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things, man. It's, it's just, you know, thinking about death, it's, 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 it's very powerful. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't really utilize that. It reminds me of that same memento mori. What is that? It basically means remember your death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I've, I've been following that for like the past five years. And yeah, people always say like, oh, well, why, you, why do you think so like morbid. that? That's depressing. <laughs> yeah, that's so de- like, that's so depressing. morbid. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? Like the fact that I remember my death allows me to live more because yeah. it's like, if you think that you're not going to die, if you don't remember that you are going to pass or my bad, you are going to die eventually, then you're yeah. not, you're not going to take advantage of 
whatever it is that you have, like the time right. that you have here. Where yeah, it's that, like, yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, uh, then then the much. question of like purpose and things like that, then it doesn't matter because you're just, you know, you're just living in the present and that's it. And you could care mm-hmm. less. And that yeah, becomes problematic because, you know, in the end, you're, you're the one that's going to lose out, man, you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's sad from a certain perspective. Like then, then wh- why would you care about purpose? Like your existence, like those existential questions, you know, one of the best, you know, one of the things that, 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 that modernity does, or like the, the, the material modern world that we live in, is it's all about like forgetting that you're going to die. Right. I mean, that's yeah. basically what it's about because you're so busy with all of, you know, whatever social media, movies, Netflix, whatever it might be. You're so busy with those things. You're living somebody else's reality or not even not even somebody else's reality, but just something that's not even real. You're in that world for so long that you've forgotten that you actually exist, man. And you have a you have a you have a duty and you have you have a place that you're going. You're on that metaphoric plane, you know but you're just enjoying the steak or the halim or whatever it is. And you care less about where the plane's going or why you're even there. Mm-hmm. My mom, right. My mom loves to watch TV shows and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's a distraction. Like you said, it distracts us from life. It, it puts us in another world in, in this fake world. And then it's like, eventually you have to come back. Yeah. And like, imagine if you're always distracting yourself. And then when you have those moments where you finally come back, it's like you realize, oh, well, I'm actually doing nothing. I'm doing nothing in this life. And then it makes you so depressed that you go and you distract yourself even more. Yeah, that's, it's like a vicious cycle, you know? And it's, uh, yeah, man, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, life is, um, you know, I mean, it's just, and a lot of times we distract ourselves because we don't want to, we don't want to face like the, the, the vicissitudes of life. Like, let's face it, man. I mean, life can be challenging, you know, I mean, and, and each person is going to be tested, right? That's part of, uh, part of our, our belief as well is that, you know, Allah tests each person and each person is going to have a unique test where, you know, they're going to be put to the test, right? And, um, and sometimes that, that's, hard to, that's hard to cope with, you know? So you just want to distract yourself and not worry about, you know, paying your bills or whatever it might be, right? You know, filling out your insurance forms or that stuff. I mean, that, that's real. That's real life, you know? And a way to distract yourself is just, well, whatever, get involved in, you know, Netflix, whatever it is. And that, that's, that's the easy, the easy way out, you know, but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not, it's not real. Yeah. All of this is kind of summarized with the verse in the Quran where Allah says that basically this life is nothing but delusion and enjoyment or delusionary enjoyment. Yeah. And it's <laughs> right. Like this life is nothing but a Zina. It's like, you know, like, it's just like, it's, it's, it's a delusion, right? It's just not, it's not even real in a, in a certain sense. Right. Yeah. And it's just mutual, uh, you know, competition and, you know, boasting about the things that you have, you yeah. know? And so that's really what it is, right? You start collecting all these toys and why are you collecting them? Ah, so I can show my friend that I have, you know, the latest, whatever, right? Like PS5, whatever it is that you people collect. Right. And so, you know, and then you just get distracted by it. And that, and that's, and the, re- and the return is to Allah at the end. Yeah. That's kind of law. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't help but think of the last few verses of Surah Najm. Yeah, where Allah, Allah basically like this is a beautiful surah, right? And it ends by saying, um, tatamara," right? Yeah. Which of the favors of your Lord are you? Do you doubt? We talked about adults earlier. Mm, yeah. Which right. of the favors of your Lord do you doubt? 
And then like this, this messenger that was sent to you, um, I'm, the translation is slipping, but basically this is a, a warner. This is a messenger, right? Someone right, to warn right. you. And then azifat al-azifa, like the, the, the time has come basically, right? Yeah. The time has come. Like, do you not reflect on this verse? Like, are you not, you know, in awe of this verse? You, this does not make you think. And yeah. Allah's like, um, we're like, uh, and, and you're, you're laughing and you're not crying about these verses. These are something yeah. that should emotionally move you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and prostrate to your Lord and worship him. And like, right, right. Yeah. Mm. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, I mean, those, those ayats from Surah Najm, and they're very powerful. It reminds me of, like, uh, like the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He said, "If you knew what I knew, you would laugh little and cry much, <laughs> right? Because he knows the, you know, he he knows the rea- he's a messenger of Allah, right? So he knows the reality of this world, and he knows the reality of what happens on the day of judgment, you know. And uh, when we forget, those things just become, you know, they they kind of consume us, you know. We get lost in them. We get worried, you know. So there was um, a speaker who said something really powerful: is that when you're lost in the vicissitude, the up, up and down, the ups and downs of life. And you're just like, oh my God, like this is just too much for me to handle. He goes, you have in a sense forgotten about who Allah is, right? Because Thanks. at the end of the day, the one that you're returning to is the one that created you. The one that is more merciful than your own mother, right? The most merciful person in your life is most likely your mother, right? The one that, and Allah is more merciful than that. You know, and the one you're returning to is the one who, you know, is, is, is Al-Bar, the one who's good, right? Is, is the, the one is Al-Wudud, the one who is, is more loving than anyone you know, right? Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, you know, Al-Qudus, the one that's holy. And so that's the one you're, so when you're, and, and the speaker said that, um, that it's like when you're, you know, in life, you sometimes get like flustered. And he goes, it's like if you have children and you throw them in the air, I don't recommend you do this, but anyway, so sometimes when you're a little kid, you throw them up, right? And when they're on their way up, they're like scared, right? They're like, <gasps> and then when they come down, you catch them and then they're laughing and like, hey, Baba, do it again. And so he said that, you know, when you're up in the air, like the child's up in the air, that's you in your life. That's your life, basically. Like, <gasps> everyone's like really worried. And the thing is, the hands you're coming back to are secure hands because they're the hands of Allah. You know, and so it's like everyone just needs to calm down and come back to Allah, and that's what it is at the end of the day, you know. Allah. Allah. Amen. So it's 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 uh yeah man it's it's that that's that's reality of the soul I guess. Akhi, <laughs> thank you so much for this productive talk. Um, well, yeah. Before we I guess stop this recording and make an end to this podcast is just under two hours. What is your last final piece of advice to anyone that is struggling with their Iman, struggling with connecting to Allah, coming back to that state of like the natural way? And this could be for Muslims. It could be for people that are non-Muslims, but they're kind of interested in Islam, but kind of not able to just connect to that. Um, so, I mean, just general advice. I mean, I think we went through a few pieces already, um, but you know, for, for the Muslims that are out there, I think a lot of times uh, we lack a connection with the Quran, which can be problematic, right? Because remember, we were talking about this, the, 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 the sustenance of the soul and that comes from the Quran and that's, you can never get tired of, of it, right? 
So if you have, let's say your limitation is the Arabic language, for instance, some people say, well, you know what? I can't read the Quran because I don't know Arabic. You know, get a good translation and just go through it, man. You know, it'll give you at least a sense of what the Quran says, right? Um, a translation I recommend is um, uh, Dr. Mustafa Khattab's, uh, you know, the clear Quran. It's a good translation. You know, the other day I was going through it and I was very impressed because he, he captured some of those linguistic aspects that like we spoke about, iltifat and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a good translation, you know? So connecting with the Quran and then the next level would be engaging with the Arabic language so you can connect even deeper with the Quran, you know? I think one of the, the tragedies of the, of the modern age for the Muslims is the, you know, the disconnect from the, from the book of Allah, right? Because the people of the past, like Ibn al-Qayyim said, you know, one of the spiritual diseases to, for you to reflect upon is um, how much of the Quran, how much of your daily reading of the Quran uh, did you limit? And I started thinking about that. I'm like, he's talking about limiting like a daily recitation. Most, there's Muslims who haven't recited the Quran. They only do it like Ramadan to Ramadan, right? Forget daily recitation, right? You're talking about like yearly, like, okay, I'll listen to the Quran Ramadan and then next Ramadan I'll come and I'll listen to it again. I mean, what do you expect? You know, so if a person is, if you're Muslim, it's time to take a journey to the Quran, engage with it because this is kalam Allah. This is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those are things that mm. it'll elevate your iman in ways that you cannot, you can't describe it, you know? And just having that, that, you know, one of the other issues about this day and age is people generally just don't like to read. So that becomes a problem, right? <laughs> because people just want a quick tweet or just want to see a video on it or whatever it might be. And you got to fight that and actually read, you know, and come back to the Quran. So that's for, I guess, the Muslims that may be struggling with their iman. That's just one kind of piece of advice. I mean, there's other things we can get into, but at least as a starting point. And as for someone who's, who's out there, who's just searching, I mean, think about some of the stuff we said in, in, the, in the podcast today, right? Uh, the idea is that there is an objective reality that is out there. And that is that there is Allah, there's a creator, and this creator has assigned a purpose in life, right? And, you know, it's not about, you know, yourself and, you know, what you believe to be true. It means you have to transcend your own ego. And that's really, anytime you want to learn anything, that's what you have to do. Because if you have an ego, it'll stop you from learning. And I'm not even talking about Islam, just anything. Like even within, like if, if you think you know, right? Like, you know, physics, you will never get to astrophysics because I already know I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But that sense of knowing is going to stop you because you, you can't grow then, right? So it's incumbent upon us to just have an open mind and start to just explore Islam, you know, kind of see what it's about, go to the Quran, you know, talk to, you know, people, Muslims, whatever it might be, and just start thinking about like those existential questions we were talking about. Because that, at the end, at least one thing that you, the, the viewer, and other people can agree upon, no matter whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, you're going to die, right? And that's basically something we can agree on. Now the reality, now the question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, that would be my, my final. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to drug myself so I end up on that plane, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the plane we don't know where it's going <laughs> um, <laughs> no, for real alhamdulillah Rami do you want to close it off yeah Sheikh 
Taslim, Habib, may Allah bless you, Masti. This has been an amazing, I mean, amazing episode. I was trying to think like you, when you would say something like, oh, that would be a good clip. And I realized this entire thing is just one giant, amazing clip. And <laughs> oh. Wallah, like, oh, may Allah bless you, Masti, Habib, Wallah. It means a lot. Thank you for coming on. Jazakallah khair. Everybody watching, comment down. Sheikh Taslim is the OG. Oh, I don't know about all if that. You made it this far. <laughs> if you made it this far. <laughs> if you made it this far. <laughs> and inshallah, no, we're going to have him back for a live stream. Inshallah, oh, we have to, inshallah, one day. With that being said, everybody, Allahumma atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa kina adab in nar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.